Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. Common Ground is a core class that meets weekly at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Our teacher, Lyric Fesco, is using this series to take a look at some of the parables of Christ. We hope you enjoy the podcast. So I was in the sixth grade. Uh, we finally convinced my parents, uh, my mom in particular, to get a dog. Well, we, went to the fa- we went to the pound, found a litter of dogs, and I set my eyes on one specific puppy. She uh, had the uh, black and brown markings of a Doberman, but had the shape more of a, of a lab. Uh, that was the dog I picked, and that was the dog we brought home. So we brought her home, and the first task when you have a dog, naturally, is to name the dog. Okay, give the dog a name. This was a female dog, so that rules out names like Buster, Fido, and Rover. So what do we name the dog? I just began thinking and circling in my mind through the names of the girls that were in my sixth grade class. (laughs) Didn't mean that to be an offensive thing, but I just was looking for a female dog name. And uh, so I started cataloging through the names in my sixth grade class, and, and this was the exercise that I landed on the name Tanya. So I said to my mom, dad, and brother, I said, how about the name Tanya? Now, I know what you're thinking. Tanya isn't a dog name. Uh, it's, it's a person name. It's like naming your dog John or Bill. You know, you don't, you don't do that. They don't work with dog names. Now, the odd thing with me saying, uh, how about the name Tanya to my, my family, uh, was that none of them said, no, that's ridiculous. <laughs> they all said, uh, you know, yeah, sure, that sounds good to me. You want a dog named Tanya? You got a dog named Tanya. And so Tanya stuck. I had a dog named Tanya. Now, it was interesting when the dog would get out and go running, you know, or just, you know, get out of the house and escape, because I would inevitably run down the street hollering for the name Tanya. People were more ready to believe that I'd lost my sister more than I did my dog, because there I am. Or we'd say something like, we keep Tanya downstairs in the laundry room. People were... more inclined to call Child Protective Services than they were to ask about what kind of a dog we had. Nevertheless, I had a dog starting in the sixth grade named Tanya, and Tanya quickly became my my best friend, a a boy and his faithful dog companion. Uh, Tanya and I went through many ups and downs. Uh, One time when I was a a puppy, uh, we were wrestling around in the grass, and and she grabbed a hold of my ear and took a nice little chunk out of it. Uh, She made me bleed, and I thought for sure, for sure that the dog was going to have to go to the pound after that. Thankfully, she didn't. But there were some rough moments uh, there for all of us. It's hard enough to convince my mom that we should get a dog, and it became even harder to convince my mom that we should keep the dog. Uh, my mom, who's a bit of a neat freak, um, didn't immediately love having a hairy creature who, who, who shed and, and, and left tracks of mud in the house. But, but after some early ups and downs early on, thankfully, Tanya got to stick around. We kept Tanya. Uh, Tanya was my one and only dog. And uh, if Tanya had to go back to the pound for any reason, there, would be, there wouldn't be any way on earth that I could convince my mom ever again to get another dog. To this day, my parents still haven't had another dog after, after Tanya. It was just Tanya. And uh, they, they never, even since we've left the house, no, they still haven't had another dog. Uh, so this was it. It was Tanya or bust, you know, for me. Uh, it either worked out for Lyric or Lyric would never have a dog again, okay? I mentioned in an email yesterday that I, I uh, often draw parallels to the chronicles of, of my dog, Tanya, uh, to an account in the Bible, the account of Abraham and Isaac. George asked me this morning if I sacrificed the dog. I did not, just, so, just, to, just to get you uh, 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 primed here. You see, I had, I had a one and only dog, 
I had one, and one dog and one dog only, and Abraham had one and one, one and only son, at least that, that he had with his wife, Sarah. There's a little more to his story, though, and, uh, and let, me back, uh, let me back up and bring you up to speed on where this takes place in redemptive time-space history. Uh, we were introduced to Abraham, or Abram, as he was called back in Genesis 11 and 12, uh, but back in chapter 12, we see that the Lord tells Abram to, to take off to depart uh, with he and his family and journey to, uh, to Egypt. But, but in that directive to take off to Egypt, the Lord says this. This is Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So... So Abram takes off. He takes off with his wife and his nephew Lot with a promise in hand that the Lord would make him the father of a, of a, of a, of a great nation and all the families of the earth will be blessed through him. At this point, he's probably 75 years old at this point, 75 years old. Before we get to chapter 22 of Genesis, numerous times the Lord has reiterated this promise to Abram, each time getting a bit more specific about that promise. And then, and then in chapter 15, the Lord comes to Abram in a vision and tells him of this great reward. And, and Abraham comes right out and says, sure, that's great and all, Lord. I mean, I get you. I hear what you're saying. But in case you haven't noticed, I'm childless, okay? I'm not getting any younger. Abram, probably at this point, is probably in his 80s now. Okay, Abram figures, well, the Lord must have meant that he wants to bless me through an heir of my household, not not a literal offspring. Okay, Uh, but the Lord again tells him, no, it won't be your appointed heir, but one that will come from your own body, one that will come from your your wife's body. And, And at this point, the Lord takes him outside, tells him to look toward the heavens and count the stars in the sky, or at least try and count the stars in the sky. And the Lord says, so shall your descendants be. Okay, and Abram replies to him, Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Prove it to me, Lord, is what he's saying. Prove it to me. How, how do I know this isn't a fairy tale that you're trying to tell me? And, and it's here that the Lord does something very significant. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. He tells Abraham to go get a series of animals to sacrifice, that the Lord would have him cut those animals in half, and, 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 and they would have to pass through those animals. Now, back in the day, this practice was, uh, was, was fairly common. It was a sign of a covenant made between two parties. And they would cut the animals in half, and then they would walk between them. In a manner of speaking, it was like saying, should we break our covenant, may this happen to us. May we be torn asunder if you or I break the covenant that we have established here, here today. And, and at that point, then both parties would walk through the carcasses and seal the deal. However, what was significant about this promise that the Lord made to Abram? When it came time to walk through the carcasses, do you know what happened? What happened? Do you know the story? He went asleep, and then what, what did the Lord do? Only the Lord walked through the carcasses. Well, Abram slept. It was if, as it was if God was telling him, "I'm going to uphold this covenant. I've got this. I'm going to uphold my end of the covenant, and I'm going to uphold your end of the covenant. Yours is only to rest. Yours is only to to uh, to sleep. That, that's great, isn't it? The only the Lord would uphold this covenant. While Abram slept. So you'd think that Abram would be satisfied at this point that God is going to do what He's going to do, but in, and He's going to uh, do what He said He would do. But nevertheless, He and His wife try and make take matters into their own hands. In chapter sixteen, His wife Sarah, then named Sarah, Sarai, uh, says, "Well, obviously, I, I don't fit into this equation. Uh, I'm too old." Take, take my maid, uh, Hagar, and have, have a child with her, is what he tells Abram to do. So Abram 
being the good husband that he is, he does what his wife asks him to do and conceives a child with Hagar. I was being very sarcastic there, by the way. <laughs> well, this causes all sorts of domestic strife between them all. And I mean, wow, didn't see that one coming, right? Go, you know, how could it? Nevertheless, a child is born to Abram, and this, made the, and this made the child that God would fulfill his promise with Abraham with, right? This was the child, right? This was the child, Ishmael, the, the, the God, the, the, that God was talking about all along, right? This was the child? Wasn't this one? No, this was not it. This was not, this was not the child. Once again, in chapter 17, God reaffirms his promise to Abram. And at this point, he changes his name from Abram to Abraham, okay? It's a subtle change, but meaningful nonetheless. Abram meant exalted father, Whereas Abraham meant father of a multitude of nations. Once again, reiterating that, that same promise again. And flat out, in Genesis 17, 19, after Abraham makes his, his, his final plea for Ishmael, that he might be the one that, uh, in whom God fulfills his promise, God replies with, God said, No, but Sarah your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. That's very specific, okay? It's not Ishmael, Isaac. I'm going to fulfill this promise through Isaac, okay? I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring later. You see, this is just a straight impossibility in Abraham's mind. I remember when, when Trace and I first uh, uh, started having children, we had our first child, Jack, and, and he was a tough baby, okay? He, he had colic, so he was always restless and generally just cranky. It was it was hard to settle him down. Nevertheless, we decided to have a second child, and I promise everybody, everybody universally told us, oh, the second one is always so much easier than the first. That was a lie, okay? That was a lie that we held everyone who said such nonsense to us. We held them personally responsible for saying this. Our second child was not just colicky, he was Colic on top of colic. If that, I just, it was just, he just cried around the clock. He just cried. And I remember we were treating him, it was almost as if he was like a, a time bomb or, or, you know, like you'd see the TV shows, like when he was in the, I remember sometimes he would be in the car seat and we'd have to get him from the car seat as asleep to the bed. It was like we were trying to defuse a bomb, you know, like be very careful. You know, hey, if you, if you don't have the stomach for this, you can step aside. I'll, I'll unbuckle it. You know, it's like we're clipping the yellow wire or something like that. Just not, don't, don't clip the wrong one, okay? Tracy and I, we didn't start having children until we were a bit more advanced in age, we like to say. We were both well into our 30s, and when we started having kids, and, and uh, there was a point where we were up in the middle of the night with Logan, and he was just crying and crying, and we had done everything we knew to do, and he just kept crying and crying and crying. And remember, without having to say a word, we, we both just looked at each other as if to say, that's not funny. We looked at each other as if to say, never again. This is it. This is it. This is it. They said, we're too old for this. We can't handle this. We're too old and we just can't live life like this around the clock. So once we make it through this child, that's it. No more. Okay. We, we were not, uh, we were, we're just too old for this. Now we thought we were old to have any more kids at that point. Abraham and Sarah were about 190 years old respectively. Okay, this is when this is all going down. Uh, they're elderly people. They're not just old, they're old, old. Do we have anyone here that is 100 years old? 100 years old or more? No. Okay, no one. Okay, uh, I thought we went, might have one this week that we could ask what it would be like having a baby now. But, we, but you can imagine, okay? They did. Abraham was about 100 years old when Isaac was born. His wife, Sarah, was, was still a spring chicken at 90 or 91. 
they believed it to be impossible, it was suddenly possible. I, I know what some of you are thinking, but yeah, but didn't they live longer back then? Yeah, a little, but it was still 190, okay? That's the same, it's unheard of, it's impossible. You don't have children at that age. This was the same thing. It's completely equivalent of me having a dog, okay? The idea that I... <laughs> Would, I mean, if this is where you'd put Abraham and, and Sarah having a, a baby at 100, me having a dog when I was a child might have been right about there, okay? It was an impossibility. I honestly don't know how or remember how we convinced my mom to get a dog, but somehow we did, and I don't remember what we had to say or do to convince her to keep the dog. Okay, once we had the dog, we had to do just as much work to try and keep the dog. I can't tell you how many times I thought my mom had reached her wit's end and proclaimed, that's it, the dog is going back to the pound. Okay, somehow the impossible was made possible. Okay, Abraham was not supposed to have a son. I was not supposed to have a dog. You see the perfect parallel though, right? <laughs> Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1, says this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, in case you missed that, God is asking Abraham to offer up his only son, Isaac, as an offering. He's asking him to kill him. Okay. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Do you remember what we talked about just a moment ago, uh, God's covenant to Abraham? We just mentioned this a few minutes ago. He told Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. All right, and that Abraham, when asked him, how, how can I know this is for sure? Then God made his way through the animal parts as if to say, I'll do this, I got it, I'll uphold all the promise, yours and mine, all, all in one. So how would God uphold this promise to Abraham? He's asking him to sacrifice his one and only offspring, sacrifice the very one he said he'd fulfill his promise through, specifically Isaac, okay? Now he's asking him to sacrifice Isaac, okay? So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Isn't that interesting? God tells him, go up there and sacrifice your son. So he gathers the wood, got up early, headed up the hill, but then he tells the men who are with them, we're going to go up there and we'll be back. Okay? What's going on here? Do you think that Abraham knows what's going on at this point? He, he's going up the hill with his son with some wood and a match. Okay? We'll be back. Really? How, how, do, how sure do you think Abraham was here? Do you think he knew that he wasn't really going to have to sacrifice Isaac? Do you think he knew he wasn't really going to have to put the knife to him? Do you think he knew that God wouldn't really make him go through it? We're given a hint exactly as, as to what Abraham is thinking in Hebrews 11. Let me turn over there for a second. This is Hebrews 11, verse 17. It says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now here's the kicker. Are you ready? Listen to what this next verse says, verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Do you see what that means? It means that Abraham fully expected to sacrifice his son. He fully expected to offer him up, to, to put a knife to him, and then burn him. 
And then after that, God would still raise him from the dead. Okay? So it must have been Abraham that he was thinking, I will give my son to God. He will give him back. Okay? Somehow, someway, he will bring him back because God keeps his promises and God does what God says he will do. Luke, did you have something? Go ahead. Uh, I think another like, helpful context for that is that Abraham came from a people who worshipped a God who did require child sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And this was not This is not unusual. Normal. It was like, oh, I finally found the God of the universe, and he's just like these other gods. Right. right? So fine, I'll do it. But believed he was different than those other gods that you would get yourself back. That somehow, some way, this was different. But nevertheless, he was prepared. He was going up there to really do this. To really do this, okay? It was when my family was moving from California to Georgia. Yes, there was a discussion that maybe the dog shouldn't go with us, but somehow, some way, I was able to keep the dog. Tanya would make the journey with us all the way to the other side of the country, okay? Once we arrived in Atlanta, we had to live in a hotel for several weeks. We looked uh, for, as we looked for, and, and we, we bought a house. Obviously, we couldn't take Tanya with us into the hotel that we were staying in, so we had to board her. We had to find her a place to live in the meantime. My family felt comfortable with Tanya's surroundings when we found this place. We found this kennel. Uh, it was practically a farm where she could run around in a very large fenced area. It was much more room than she ever had in San Francisco in our, in our backyard. And as I said, my family was comfortable with it. I was not, okay? All I saw was a rickety fence, which looked nothing more than a bunch of termites holding hands. That's what it looked like to me, okay? That was supposed to keep Tanya safe and protected, you know? That, that was my one and only dog, and dare I say it, my best friend at the time. I was in a new city. I didn't know anyone. Yes, I had a brother, but at the time, all he was interested in was reading books and building model airplanes. That's all he did. Not different than today. He still likes doing those very same things, Okay? Though we are best friends. We like to say we are best friends. Aside from my wife, of course. (laughs) Needless to say, it couldn't have been more than a couple of days when we received the call that Tanya had escaped. And the helpless farmer had no idea where she she ran off. Okay, we went over there. We looked. We searched. We probably put up the signs and everything. I called as loud as I could. Tanya. Tanya was gone. As we ran up and down the streets yelling, Tanya. I don't remember how much time exactly had elapsed since her disappearance, but it was enough time that my mom began preparing me for the worst, that maybe Tanya was gone forever. And it was that this was perhaps by God's design that Tanya was gone, that it was God's will. I knew she never liked that dog. Well, I would have none of that. I I didn't want to hear this. I would have none of that. I I vividly remember praying as hard as I could, because even after my mom is telling me, she's trying to tell me that maybe maybe this is God's will here, that that Tanya is gone. But I remember praying as vividly and hard as I could, God, please give me my dog back. I don't want your will here. (laughs) I I don't care what your will is. I just want my dog back. I just want my dog back. I remember praying that still, no Tanya. Okay, it was at this point that my mom told me about this account of of Abraham and Isaac, how it was that Abraham was probably thinking, I will give my son to God, but he will give him back. Somehow, some way he will bring him back. God, give God what you have, all that you have. Give God what you have, all that you have. And he and see what he gives you back. Okay. Now, I have to be careful here because there's a lot going on here in this more than just Abraham showing us how much faith he had, 
Okay, Abraham didn't hold on too tightly to Isaac because he knew somehow, some way God would give him back. See, this is what separates Abraham's story from mine. Uh, God promised Abraham that he would, he would fulfill his covenant by way of his son Isaac. That, that what, uh, that's what he promised him. So, so Abraham knew that whatever he was asking him to do, somehow, some way, God would bring Isaac back. God never made any promises that he would give me my dog back. Okay. There was no such covenant that ensured me that if I held my hands open and trusted God and gave my dog up to him, that he would bring my dog back to me. No such promise was made. No such covenant was, was, uh, was, was bonded. Or maybe he did. Maybe, maybe it's a lesson that you can't learn early enough in life. Don't hold on to anything. Don't hold anything back from God. Anything. I don't care what it is. Don't hold anything back from God. Hands wide open. Okay, and what will the result be? Sacrifice your life, sacrifice your life so that you can gain it back. This is, it's a paradox, but this is, this is the way of our faith. It's, it's, a, it's a backward, backward uh, intuitively concept. Sacrifice to gain, winning through losing. Uh, look back in Genesis 22. This is verse six and following. Let's see how the rest of the story unfolds here. This is Genesis 22, six to eight. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they, so they uh, went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. So Isaac asked his father, he's in the dark apparently, he doesn't know what's, what's about to go down. Where's, where's the lamb, dad? God provides, son. God provides. God keeps his covenant. God will do what God says he will do. You see, God never made any promises to me that he would give me a, give me a, a dog. He never made any promises that he would give my dog back if, if my dog skipped town. But this was still a very early lesson for me. And what was the lesson I was learning in this moment when I wasn't sure if my dog was ever coming back? The lesson was this. God provides, son. God keeps his covenant. God will do what God says he will do. One way or another, God will provide for me. God will supply my need. God will give me everything I need and more, with or without a dog. I, I jumped over to Hebrews 11 uh, a moment ago, and I read all the way through the 19th verse. Well, actually, I didn't read all the way through the 19th verse. Let me read all of the 19th verse this time. This is, this is Hebrews 11, 19. And it says this, he considered that God was able even to raise him, we're talking about Isaac, was raised him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. <coughs> what does that mean, figuratively speaking? When we say we're speaking figuratively, what do we mean by that? That's usually a clue that we're speaking in metaphor. When we say something like the basketball player shot the eyes out of the other team, we don't mean that he literally shot the eyes out of the other team. We're speaking, we're speaking figuratively, right? Is this what the writer of Hebrews means, that he was speaking figuratively? When, when the writer of, of Hebrews references the idea that we're speaking figuratively, here he's telling us that what's happening here the, the actions of Abraham and Isaac, what they went through, though at the time they didn't realize that their actions prefigured the actions of another. Their actions figuratively pointed to someone else's actions. Okay? And whose actions would those be? 
Let's go back to Genesis and finish off the story. This is Genesis 22, 9 and following. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behold him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham didn't hold on too tightly to what was given to him because he had faith in the one that made a promise to him, that God would keep his promise to him and even provide the very sacrifice that was required of him. God would do that. We're told in, in uh, Romans 8.32, that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Okay? He gave up his son, and, and through him he will give us all things. He gave up his son, and through his son he will give us all things. Okay? Through Jesus I will receive all things. God provides. God keeps his promises. He's the one who makes the sacrifice and, and in the process gives us all things. So this account, and it should come as no surprise to you, is really nothing more than a pointer to Christ. How is it that God does what he says he will do? He provides for us the sacrifice and he gives us all things in the process. But look, also don't miss this. It's not just that we get a pointer to Jesus from Abraham here. What about Isaac? Do you see a pointer to, to, to Jesus through Isaac here too? How, how about the willingness of the son? The willingness of the son to do as his father tells him. Isaac carried the very wood on which he would be sacrificed. Does that remind you of somebody? The cross. It points us to the wood that Christ carried on his own back. That he willingly carried the very wood on which he would be sacrificed, just as Isaac did thousands of years before. He didn't object. He faithfully did what was called of him. It perfectly parallels the prophetic words of Isaiah 53, 7 which says he was oppressed and yet he was afflicted. He, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. After reading that and only that, we could ask, are we talking about Isaac or are we talking about Christ? It's the same description. So what we have in Abraham and Isaac is the account of a God who asks Abraham to give up what was precious to him to give up the very thing that God told him he would provide for him to bless all nations through him. Abraham gives back to God what was his all along, knowing that somehow, someway, God would graciously give him all things, more than a son. What Abraham needed was a savior, and that's what God gave him. More than a dog, what I needed was a savior. My dog, Tanya, didn't come back. No matter how hard I prayed that I wanted her back, I, I, again, I didn't care if it was God's will, I just wanted my dog back. Tanya wasn't coming back. So very reluctantly, quite unlike Abraham, I finally came to the point where I prayed to God that if he was asking me to open up my hands and give him my dog, he could have her. As much as it hurt me to say it, I let go of that which I was holding onto so tightly and trusted that God had my best interest at heart. That if my dog never came home, God still provides.
God still can be trusted. God still does what he says he will do. And God provides me a savior. This is what I learned through it. This is what I needed to learn, that God is these things to me in spite of what my circumstances are. God provides always. He provides me a savior. Would you believe that the next morning I was awakened, the next morning I was awakened by a telephone call? It was the farmer from the kennel telling us that they might have found Tanya and that we might want to get down to the pound to see if it was her. I I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. We didn't waste any time. I made my dad drive as fast as he could to get there. We went up to the the person at the desk and told the person that we we think you may have my dog. We were the ones looking for the Doberman colored looking lab. Please, please take me to her. Please show me which dog it is. And they did. I spotted her in one of the cages and I'd never seen her ears hanging so low. It was the saddest I've ever seen her look until she locked her eyes on mine. And then she went bananas. <laughs> and so did I, of course. There was laughing. There was crying. She, w- she wouldn't stop licking my face once they let her out. Tanya was back. And you know what? It might have been the very moment when I decided as a young kid that God was real. Not because my dog came back. Not because my dog came back. But because he brought me to a place in my misery in my sadness, in my despair. When I was all the way at the bottom, he brought me to a place in that despair where I was saying, okay, God, I I believe you. I know you love me. I know you provide for me. I know you'll do the say, you'll you do the things you say you'll do. I know you've given me a savior and that's more than enough. You've given me all things. He brought me to a place that made me say that and know that irrespective of whether or not I had a dog, he had me to a place where I confessed those things. That's the place where he brought me and through it all. And then I got my dog back to boot. You know, now understand me, I don't believe that I got my dog back because I believe those things. I just think that getting the dog back was the cherry on top. You know, the best prize, the prize that can't be topped was the knowledge that in spite of my circumstances, I have a God who loves me, provides for me, does what he says he will do, who has provided me a savior, has given me all things. Any thoughts or questions or, or comments on any of that? Yeah. So when Abraham's holding a knife and says an angel of the Lord mm-hmm. spoke out, do we think that's Jesus? Uh, usually, when, usually when they say angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's referring to, to Jesus. Did it say angel in here? Did it say voice? I can't remember. It did say angel. I'm going to say nine times out of ten when it's angel of the Lord, because if there's one member of the Trinity whose expertise it is to interact with with human, to to get on a human level and speak to them in in a way they understand, that's Jesus. So uh, without definitively saying yes, I'm inclined to believe that it was, that it was Jesus. Because later it said, withhold your son from me. Mm -hmm. So if it was Mm -hmm. a random angel. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good catch. Yeah. That's why I say nine times out of 10, you know, there's only a few instances where I might say, well, maybe that wasn't uh, Jesus, but nine times out of ten, if it's the angel of the Lord, you can probably bet that it was Jesus. Yeah. Uh-huh. Prefigured. Yeah. Well, it, uh, going back and looking at the way the covenant plays out with Abraham, it's not that he's asleep and not part of it. Mm-hmm. He's still in that covenant. Mm-hmm. It's that God is taking on all of the responsibilities mm-hmm. and all of the consequences for failure. But Abraham's still, he's still present in the covenant, mm-hmm. so all that's left for him is the reward of fulfillment of the covenant. Right. And then on the cross, you have 
a Christ who lived the life that was supposed to be lived, mm -hmm. who took the consequences for failure to live that life, and in faith, you share in the reward. That's right. Only, the only part you have in it is the, re is the reward. That's right. I love that. Susan. I can't help but think about how the story, though, is um, as believers on this side of the cross points us to Galatians 2.20. Mm -hmm. yeah, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But, and, and God calls us, even as believers on this side of the cross, to, to give up our will. We, we're constantly dying to the flesh. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and we live by faith of, of what God is going to resurrect and what, what he's, he's going to let, mm -hmm. you know. I, I, I keep coming back to stories like this that, and again, we, we did a whole series on the Old Testament in this class and uh, where we walked through specifically not just accounts of the Old Testament, but accounts where we see parallels of Christ in the Old Testament. These are not just like, oh, that's a nice coincidence. No. And to me, as we're going through the sermon series right now, just uh, uh, sort of addressing the doubts of Christianity, this to me is perhaps the most lock-tight evidence there, there is that there are so many instances all throughout the Old Testament where you see, well, that's, that's a prefiguring the, the story of Christ. That, that is an exact representation of what happened in the Old Testament. And it happens again and again and again and again and again. How, how could any mere mortals put something like this together that somehow has a payoff like that in the New Testament? It's just impossible. And I, I want to say, I feel like C.S. Lewis had a similar quote to that because there's just no way around it, that no mere mortal could have designed that so that everything worked together so that it ended up in the New Testament to, to fulfill what was being sort of forecasted in the Old Testament time and time again. And this is just one of the most clear pictures of it, that a, both in Isaac and Abraham and even the ram that was provided, that was a prefigured Christ as well, a, a representation of Christ. It's just amazing to me. I just, I just can't get over it. It's all about Christ from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation. Someone else? Anything else? All right. Well, great. I hope you all have a great Memorial uh, Day holiday. And someone want to close us in prayer? Who can do that for us? Thank you all so much for listening, and we hope you tune in next week. If you have any questions, please feel free to leave a comment for us. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and subscribe. Have a great week.